Stephen King's novel, Christine, about a 1958 Plymouth Fury that ran amok after having been possessed by malevolent supernatural forces, was released on April 19, 1983. A film adaptation of Christine was then directed by John Carpenter. After having had great success in 1978 with his movie Halloween, John Carpenter then went on to continue his great streak of great horror film making with 1980's The Fog and 1982's The Thing. The Thing starring Kurt Russell was initially hated by the majority of film critics upon its release. It made an underwhelming $19.6 million in the box office during its initial run. It was praised for its special effects, but was viewed as being too dark due to its extraterrestrial life form that assimilated and then imitated the organisms around it, and the sheer graphic nature of its gore. A far cry from the star alien life form of the day, E.T., who was a kind, cuddly extraterrestrial with an eager, stretching neck who enjoyed Reese's Pieces and meant no harm at all. It was clear which life form audiences preferred. E.T. was released in June of 1982, and by 1983, it had surpassed Star Wars as the highest-grossing film of all time, making $359 million in North America and $619 million worldwide. Astronomical numbers when inflation and early 80s ticket prices are taken into account. E.T. was number one in the box office for six weeks and remained in theaters for well over a year. It wouldn't be surpassed as the highest grossing movie of all time until another Steven Spielberg directed film, Jurassic Park, would go on to make over a billion dollars after its release and long run in theaters in 1993. The Thing has since gained cult status and is considered among many to be one of the best horror films ever made. Back to Stephen King's Christine. As I said, a film adaptation of the novel was directed by John Carpenter and was released in theaters in December of 1983. It went on to make over $21 million at the U.S. box office. But Christine was only one in a long line of road movies, and certainly wasn't the first film released about a demonically possessed automobile. Six years prior, a film was shot in southern Utah and factors into the theme of this episode's story. The ground was hallowed. That's what I say. But you think about it. Everything that's happened, what it did to the guys, and how. Everybody else was killed on the street. Lauren was killed in the middle of her own living room. She was special. Why? Because she cursed him, that's why. I don't believe it. I don't accept it. Wait! That car flew into that house four feet off the ground. And how did he know where she lived? Keep the roadblocks up. Get all the other guys. Hallowed ground is important, particularly if you're talking about finding solace and protection from a demonically possessed car. On May 13, 1977, a film was released about a highly customized 1971 Lincoln Continental Mark III that ran amok among the citizens of a small desert town. It was shot in and around Zion National Park in St. George in southern Utah. The movie was called The Car and starred Josh Brolin. 
It was inspired by numerous road movies, not the least of which was 1971's Duel, which was Steven Spielberg's feature film directorial debut. He directed Duel, a universal picture, at the ripe old age of 24. Spielberg would then go on to direct Jaws, the first blockbuster of all time, while still in his 20s. The opening scene of the car features two cyclists riding through a tunnel shot at Zion National Park and being chased by the black menace of an automobile until they meet their demise. There's also a scene in the movie in which some town citizens, many of them children, are taking solace within the town cemetery. For as we know, demonic forces can't enter a cemetery. That is hallowed ground. Grafton, a ghost town only a few miles to the south of Zion National Park, is now a peaceful and beautiful place, but it lives up to its title of ghost town. Within the protection of the fence and gate that surrounds it, Grafton Cemetery features the stories of those who lived so long ago and died in a myriad of ways. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West, Grafton, a Ghost Story. Cemeteries and ghost towns seem to go hand in hand. Sure, it's possible to have a ghost town without headstones or the burial places of those who long ago left this life. But the mystique is multiplied ten times when you add stones with dates carved on them or wooden crosses and mounds of dirt marking the burial places of those who lived there long ago. Mysteries seem to build with time. When multiple generations have passed between the time in which the town was inhabited and now, the possibility for stories and even ghost stories, are endless. Such it is with Grafton, Utah. There are ghost stories upon ghost stories surrounding that place. It sits nestled next to the Virgin River in between the Red Rock Cliffs of southern Utah, only a few miles from the entrance of Zion National Park. Raindrops have fallen on my head And just like the guy who's feet are too Many films have been shot there. Matter of fact, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, as well as Mrs. Robinson's daughter, Catherine Ross, have been to Grafton. Some of the scenes from 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were shot there. Matter of fact, the first talkie to be shot out of doors and not on a studio lot was Old Arizona from 1928. That was shot at Grafton as well. I've had the chance to explore Grafton several times. The last time I went was just this last January. I was by myself and came across a few tourists who were there as well. There was a family from Alabama that I chatted with for a bit. The dad joked that as I was walking up to them, he thought I was holding a hatchet, but it turned out it was just my camera's tripod. He was relieved. I asked the family if they had stopped at Grafton Cemetery. They said they hadn't. I reminded them that the cemetery is just off to the right as you're leaving the main part of town. I pulled out of town a few minutes after them and noticed they hadn't heeded my suggestion to check out the cemetery. Perhaps not everyone appreciates a good cemetery the way that I do. I also passed a man and his teenage daughter who were there checking out the town. The girl was wearing an E.T. t-shirt, and I congratulated her on her appreciation of quality cinema. I stopped off at the cemetery just before dark on my way out. I had been within the gates of the cemetery a few times before. One time with an ex who did happen to appreciate cemeteries, 
But with time, we found that we did not appreciate each other enough to stick it out. A few years back, I explored the town with my family as part of my parents' 50th wedding anniversary celebration when we stayed at Ponderosa Ranch on the other side of the national park. I remember that day my mom sang an old pioneer song as we were walking through the cemetery. She said she learned it back in her school days. Here's a clip of that now. Till death will find my dog and me to find a better home. You know the last line? Boy. And my little old shanty on the plains. How'd you learn that one? In school. The old cemetery tells more about the old settlement of Grafton than most people realize. The many small, unmarked graves are those of children who died while their families struggled to live on the banks of the Virgin River. The small, wooden, fenced graves of the berries tells the stories of conflicts between the new settlers and the old inhabitants of the land. Right in front of that small, wooden, fenced area is a joint marker for Loretta Russell and Elizabeth Woodbury. I stood in front of it in January and read the marker. Though some of it is no longer legible, it did say this. Loretta is the daughter of Alonzo H. and Nancy B. Russell and died at age 14 years, 4 months, and 48 days. Elizabeth is the daughter of Thomas H. and Harriet Woodbury and died at age 13 years. Both of these girls died while swinging. The swing broke and the girls fell. They fell into the Virgin River, where they subsequently drowned. Let me catch you up a little bit on the history of Grafton. In 1859, Nathan Tenney led five families, the Barneys, Davies, McFates, Platts, and Schertz, from nearby Virgin to a site one mile downstream of today's Grafton. The small community cooperated to plant crops, dig irrigation ditches, and build homes. The idea was never profit, but rather community and faith. In 1861, as the U.S. Civil War began, cotton became scarce, and Brigham Young's vision of Utah's Dixie began to bear fruit. Grafton was so zealous in its first year of cotton cultivation that farmers didn't plant enough corn, cane, and other crops to feed their families. In coming years, Virgin River farmers would scale back cotton in favor of food production. Survival in this dry place along a tempestuous river would require their undivided attention and all their land. Cotton wasn't the only thing that consumed precious land. In January 1862, a raging flood destroyed most of Grafton, Duncan's Retreat, Adventure, and Northrop. A resident of Virgin wrote, the houses in old Grafton came floating down with the furniture, clothing, and other property of the inhabitants, some of which was hauled off out of the water, including three barrels of molasses. Grafton settlers relocated to higher ground one mile upstream of their first town, where the current town site now stands. Grafton's existence is a testament to the early settlers' perseverance and industrious spirit. Even in their new location, Grafton's troubles were not over. Irrigation dams were repeatedly washed out, sometimes two or three in a single year. Even without flooding, irrigation ditches regularly filled with sand and required such continuous attention that one settler remarked, making ditches at Grafton is like household washing. It's a weekly chore. Despite Dixie's limited farmland, scant rainfall, and problematic irrigation, Grafton settlers were optimistic and for the most part in good health. During these years, death came in its usual manner, taking the old, the sick, and the very young. The Grafton Cemetery holds six babies from these years, all under one year of age. Mary Jane York, 
28, died of consumption, and Byron Lee Bybee, 65, died of poor health. And there were accidents. Joseph C. Field, 9, was dragged to death by a horse, but life went on. Crops and fruit trees did well, and music was part of everyday life with a dance every Friday night. Grafton grew slowly as saints burgeoning from Salt Lake City joined the community effort. During these years, settlements were precarious, and pioneers moved often looking for stable locations. That left Grafton nearly a ghost town by 1866 when these two girls drowned. I stood there in front of their headstone thinking about how their families must have felt that day. In 1927, a 12-year-old girl named Velo DeMille was playing Run Sheepy Run, a version of Hide and Seek in Grafton. She shut her eyes while the other kids ran to hide, and when she opened them, she saw two pale girls in long white dresses, hair down to their waist, run through the fence and disappear. It was later when she learned about the story of the two girls who had drowned. She knew for certain that those were the two girls in ghostly form that she had seen when she was playing hide-and-go-seek with her friends. Also in the cemetery are three wooden markers with the names Wiley, Puss, and Poinkum, indicating the many years when both the old and new residents of this land lived in peace. I think we often assume that the Native Americans and the pioneers crossing the plains lived completely separate lives. For the most part, that was the case, but I've learned of other scenarios where pioneers and those crossing the plains ended up being buried in old Native American burial grounds. For example, in Salt Lake City, Utah, when the pioneers arrived in 1847, the first year or so, they buried their dead at a place called Old Fort, which then became Pioneer Park. That was already an established Native American cemetery. In 1986, as excavation for buildings in the area was being done, some of those original graves were discovered, and they were relocated to This Is The Place Heritage Park. One of those graves was for little Milton Thurlkill. He was the first person to die after the Mormon pioneers arrived in Salt Lake City. Only a few days earlier, he drowned in City Creek. The fact is, the town of Grafton is a fun place to explore, ghost stories or not. Several of the structures are still there, and a lot of them are almost in their original condition. I remember when I was there with my family in 2017, a couple of the old houses have outside entrances into the basement. One of the basements looks exactly like the end of the Blair Witch Project. When the team of filmmakers are exploring that old house in the woods and they run into the basement and find their friend facing the wall as the Blair Witch is in the house, most likely doing dastardly deeds. Grafton is a place that we can't turn away from. It's full of history and good stories. As you walk down the dusty roads in town, you can't help but feel like you're being watched. It doesn't necessarily feel like it's by a malevolent force such as the car from the 1977 movie. But it certainly could be those who have gone before and lived and died in Utah's Dixie. We may never know. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for joining me for Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. Mm-hmm.